What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Aaron Hurst, the founder and CEO of Imperative and the author of The Purpose Economy. Aaron has been wired to challenge the status quo from a very early age. He sees opportunity and potential in every direction, and by his own admission, he's a bit of a troublemaker. During Aaron's childhood, he moved around a lot, and as a result, he developed the important skill of pattern recognition, a skill that has served him well throughout his entrepreneurial efforts. Early in Aaron's career, he founded the Taproot Foundation, a pro bono community of professionals who volunteered their time and expertise to helping mission-driven nonprofits with things like marketing and PR and other important services that they need to achieve maximum impact. This community blossomed into a $15 billion marketplace. Perhaps the most interesting takeaway was the power of purpose that emerged. Aaron would constantly hear about the sense of meaning the participants would feel from helping the nonprofit community. This theme continues today. Aaron and his team at Imperative are focused on unlocking and measuring the power of purpose inside of organizations and helping the individual employees connect their purpose to the purpose of the organization. In 2014, Aaron published his book, The Purpose Economy, a book that predicts the next economic wave will be known as the Purpose Era. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Hurst. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me today on another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast is someone who I believe I've got the latitude to now call a friend. His name is Aaron Hurst. He is the author of The Purpose Economy. He is the founder and CEO of an amazing organization called Imperative, and he's a whole lot of other things that we're going to get to. Aaron, it is great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. So it's good to be talking with a friend. Yeah, amen, brother. Amen. You know, I've got to share with uh, with our audience that uh, you were kind enough. It was probably about a year ago, maybe a little bit less. And this was right at a time when we decided that, hey, let's do a podcast show. We think it'd be a good idea. And you were so gracious in granting us the opportunity to chat with you. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was, without a doubt, the worst performance of my career in terms of interviewing anybody. I had no idea what I was doing, no format. I don't even know that I had a microphone. I think we were doing it through a speakerphone. It was atrocious. And uh, I know we joked about it a little bit when I saw you in Austin. So I am just so thankful that you're giving me uh, another opportunity to chat with you. So thank you. No, it's a pleasure to do it. And I Love the work you do, and uh, in Austin, got to see you working your skills on stage, and I've seen few people who can MC an event with your uh, with your talents, so excited for the conversation. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. So I'd love to start, you know, you've essentially had an entrepreneurial DNA flowing through you essentially your whole life, and I'm curious, is there a particular moment or a memory you have from when you were a young man where you just knew that pursuing an entrepreneurial path and really challenging the status quo and living on the edge of innovation was going to be really the hallmark of who you are as a human being? Yeah, it's funny. I don't think anyone in my family 
sort of even knew the word entrepreneur. I mean, obviously they knew it if you asked it, but it wasn't something that was in my vernacular. Um, so it wasn't, I never categorized it that way. I was just always sort of saw myself as a troublemaker, um, was always sort of seeing the status quo and always feeling like there's a better way to do things. Um, always starting clubs. I probably had 10 different clubs in high school that I started. I had my own business in high school um, and just saw opportunity everywhere. Um, so I think it was, I would not have called it being sort of an entrepreneur at the time. I and mean, in retrospect, it was, I think it was just seeing opportunities, seeing uh, potential sort of in every direction that I looked. Um, and also just, I think early on being very much a futurist. I remember one story that my dad always tells us, I think it was in junior high, we were walking by a, uh, a small lake outside of our, our hometown at the time, Boulder, Colorado. Um, and for whatever reason, I started talking about sort of how we were eventually going to have water shortages and that we should really pool our money and just start buying uh, fresh water sources um, so that we could eventually be able to sell them at a profit when water becomes scarce. So I think even in junior high, I sort of had that sort of futurist uh, progressive mindset around sort of realizing where the world was going and seeing that there was opportunity in that. You moved around quite a bit, uh, you know, during your childhood. I think you lived in quite a few different places, both in the States as well as abroad. I'm curious, as you look back on that, I, I would imagine it was probably a bit challenging growing up, making friends and then having to uproot and move. What do you think the positives of that have been as you look back? I think it's, um, I mean, it definitely was painful at times, but I think there's a lot of positives to that. I mean, we moved every few years and I think it, one, it really taught me pattern recognition because you started to see same things emerge across different cultures and people who considered themselves different, you saw the actual similarities. Um, it helped me like really quickly learn how to connect with people because um, you had to quickly reconnect with new new groups of people. Um, and I think that was a, was a real benefit. Um, I think it also just taught me that uh, we're way more resilient and adaptable than I think a lot of people who are born and raised in one town and never go anywhere don't realize how resilient and adaptable they are. And that's why as an adult, even, you know, since I graduated college, I was in Chicago, then San Francisco, then Brooklyn, and now in Seattle. So, um, you know, I think I very much believed in that old uh, cliche, wherever you go, there you are. Um, and realizing that um, you don't need to be sort of uh, fully rooted in any one area, that you can really make the whole world your home. So I think those are sort of a few of, a few of the, uh, the lessons from that experience. But yeah, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I think it was great to be able to move around that much. And there certainly were some downsides, but I, I really feel <laughs> I have some level of jealousy of kids who lived in one place only and had the same friends in like kindergarten as they did in high school. But um, I feel like they also just missed something significant. And I'm a big advocate for, for example, study abroad and other opportunities to get students to really make sure that they see themselves as a global citizen, not just sort of a citizen of one town. Yeah, I was just going to say it probably, you know, the the amount of movement that you had just really opened your eyes to really how big the world is and in many ways how similar we all are. At the end of the day, we are one human race and the, the similarities far outweigh the differences. It also defines things. Like I didn't realize how important it was to sort of say I'm an American until I lived abroad. And you realize that as much as we may differ from each other in the U.S., simple fact that we're from the U.S., like define so much of who we are and our view of the world. Um, some of these things, I think, just are really instructive as you think about identity and think about your values. Yeah, absolutely. Did I read somewhere that you were raised Buddhist? 
Yeah, my parents were both uh, Tibetan Buddhists, um, part of a Buddhist cult that was out of Boulder, Colorado, and then moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia. So I grew up going to, in Boulder, it was actually a Buddhist uh, elementary school um, of all the kids of the Sangha, the local community, um, and then was heavily involved up in Nova Scotia as well. Um, it was, uh, you know, I, it was a largely Jewish uh, population of folks who had sort of embraced Tibetan Buddhism. It, um, I always struggled to even call it Buddhism because, you know, I don't think it was authentically of that culture. And I think a lot of religion is culture, not just faith. Um, but, well, I don't practice Buddhism and rejected sort of that cult. Um, I feel like a lot of my work since then was heavily influenced by that, especially around the whole idea of consciousness and really seeing the world as those that are conscious and those that aren't, and really seeing much of my mandate in my career is trying to increase that sense of consciousness in the workplace. Well, and I think uh, at least what I've learned, and I am not a practicing Buddhist by any stretch, but I, I, I think I know a few uh, who are you know, somewhat observant and really certainly buy into the principles of it, that the one takeaway for me at least is that you know, everything we need and everything we desire truly can come from within versus what I think perhaps is some, of the, some of the received wisdom that is handed down generation after generation is that all the world's riches and happiness live outside of oneself. And that's that's frankly a bit of a uh, of a flawed uh, sense of wisdom. No, I mean, all the science now points to the fact that like intrinsic motivation is what matters, not extrinsic. And yeah. I think that's tied to consciousness and it's tied to definitely the core of Buddhism and it's um, I think pretty much at this point been proven to be sort of the key to our future success as a species. No doubt. You know, that intrinsic motivation, I think, is a great segue. So I, I, I don't I, I totally want to get into all the work you're up to today, but I think I'd be missing a huge opportunity to talk about the Taproot Foundation. And, and as, as you mentioned, intrinsic motivation, I mean, you did something truly magical in creating a multi-billion dollar pro bono network of services for not-for-profit communities. And I'd love maybe if you could just share a little bit about the Taproot root foundation uh and you know what's what spurred it and just sort of the 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 magical creation that is still thriving today yeah and the taproot foundation was my venture before imperative it started in 2001 and it was a very simple impulse i think most good ideas are very simple ones when i have complicated ideas i tend to realize they're bad ones <laughs> um, but the very simple idea is that nonprofits need the same marketing tech hr finance recruiting etc services as companies, but they can't afford them, almost without exception. And that without them, they really are increasingly being left behind in a market where those services are what define successful organizations. So um, we set about saying, how do we make pro bono service as prevalent you know, in these other professions as it is in the legal profession? And it took about five years of really understanding intrinsic motivation and how to harness it to really understand how do you not just, it's easy to recruit people to do pro bono work, um, I can sign up people super fast to do a project for a, for a nonprofit. The hard part is getting them to finish it. How do you actually get someone to complete a complex project? Because we all have busy lives. We've got a lot going on. Like what actually, you can't, you know, reward someone with money. You can't reward them with a promotion. How do you actually get them to finish that work? And that really led to the largest experiment that I know of in history on intrinsic motivation of just really figuring out over the course of thousands of complex projects, how do you use that intrinsic motivation 
to really inspire people and get them to finish <laughs> pro bono work. And um, it really it was remarkable because when I started uh, Taproot, basically nonprofits said we don't want pro bono work because it never gets done. And by the time I left Taproot um, a dozen years later, and as you said, it was a multi-billion dollar marketplace. We had affiliates all around the world. We had really proven that once you understand intrinsic motivation, um, nonprofits really can count on pro bono work. And it got to the point where it was pro bono work was uh, the amount of work done was about four times what uh, is done in terms of cash philanthropy in corporations. So massive impact on the nonprofit sector and on people's identity as professionals. Yeah, you know, it, it, and, and I'll say that perhaps uh, just my perception that, you know, a really amazing unintended consequence that I think you learned very early on was that, you know, the collective spirit from the professionals who were delivering the pro bono work, you just started to hear over and over again that the reward of doing yeah. that work was so much higher than that of their normal, their paycheck job. Yep. Talk about that a little bit. Like, you know, yeah, when did that start to emerge and, and how repetitive did it become? Well, it's so cool. I mean, we heard that all the time and people found that so much more rewarding. And you also saw, like, if you look at a lot of the top sort of social innovation organizations today, many of them were former Taproot volunteers where it sparked that uh, within them. For example, you know, the head of the Social Innovation Summit, Zeeb Klein, was a Taproot volunteer. And a lot of these people are it sparked a lot of people to think differently about their careers as well. We had a lot of people get married out of the program. Um, just there's something about when you're doing work that's authentic and you bring your full self to it, it just awakens people. So we saw this and we saw that um, people were finding pro bono work so powerful. And at first we were just so thrilled with that. And, you know, I joke that, you know, basically felt like we'd created Disneyland for work. Think about Disneyland as the happiest place on earth. That's sort of what we created for work. <laughs> I, um, I might argue that having been there with my young kids, it could be a little bit of a pain in the ass, <laughs> but I hear you. <laughs> um, well, and that's sort of the second part of it is sort of realizing that, you know, at the exception of some creepy folks, like no one lives at Disneyland, right? And I think that was what we came to realize yeah. was that people need to go back to their day lives. And pro bono work was actually creating a supplement instead of fixing the core. And really sort of had the inspiration to say, how do we take what we've learned in this, you know, the largest experiment on intrinsic motivation in history and bring that to everyday jobs? Um, and that was really the spark that started Imperative, my new B Corp. Yeah. So so sort of transitioning that way, you know, looking at some of the different uh, labels that have been given to the economies of, you know, the human existence from the agrarian to the industrial to the, mm -hmm. the knowledge or information to now yep. what you've coined, uh, which I think is dead on the purpose economy. You know, how much of what you had discovered and learned and experienced at Taproot really led into the work that you're doing at Imperative? Yeah, and I think there's a bunch of different threads there. I mean, one, you know, I, in my book, The Purpose Economy, really do lay out what I believe, which is that the sort of we're entering and we're sort of within a few years of purpose actually dominating the economy in terms of how it's affecting labor markets and consumption. Um, and, um, you know, sitting at Taproot, we had a unique opportunity to be able to have access to so many companies, so many nonprofits, so many governments. It was a pretty unique vantage point to see this shift happen over about 10 years where we saw that uh, people's needs and decision making was changing. And that's really you know, led to as well the idea that imperative was needed. We needed a way to take this whole idea of purpose and go from it being what I call sort of a poetry of good intent 
and breaking it down into a science. Uh, and what we've done is just done a series of research so that we can actually start to predict what brings purpose to each person based on their psychological profile. We can understand why people embrace purpose or don't. Um, we can understand how team dynamics work around purpose so that um, we can actually start to throw out the sort of industrial and information age uh, systems that have been managing talent, which are frankly not in the best interest of businesses or individuals, and start to replace them with you know, our science and platform around purpose itself. What do you think are the biggest myths right now that exist around this notion of purpose? Because I think, at least in my experience, yep. there's a lot of folks out there, leaders of organizations who grew up in a different time in a different place and were given a different set of Absolutely. instructions of how the world works. Um, I think many of them have sort of cast aside purpose temporarily, wondering if this is a fad that's going to pass. And I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, what do you consider to be the myths around purpose and what, what are the truths around purpose? Yep. That's probably a five hour conversation, but I'll give you the headlines. <laughs> um, so I think the biggest one, this is something you talked about earlier, is sort of intrinsic, extrinsic motivation. I think a lot of folks look at causes as you know, the sense of like having to be about a cause as being the source of purpose. And you see this a lot in the early days of the purpose economy where you'd see companies getting into cause marketing, for example, right? Yeah. Where their answer seeing the need was just to adopt a cause and slap it on their brand. Um, and uh, this is a really sort of superficial and not terribly meaningful way to engage around purpose um, because largely around trying to create sort of that in extrinsic external uh, connection instead of actually realizing that purpose comes from within people and they don't have to have a cause to be able to have purpose. In fact, we've seen in every single profession we've studied people working and finding purpose and vice versa. We've found that over half the people in the nonprofit sector, more than half the people in education, more than half the people in healthcare are actually not purpose oriented. Um, so the whole notion I mean, that's fascinating in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, which is sad. I mean, it's sad and it's sort of a, a parent. You think about, you know, a lot of the teachers out there are not actually purpose oriented. You know, as a patient of doctors, it makes me nervous. And as someone who's worked in the sector, I mean, it's a major problem that there's so many people that are not aligned with the right motivations working in these critical caring fields. So that said, have you been able to distill? So if, if, uh, if, if, what, if what I heard is that too often, that a cause and purpose are being used interchangeably and they're truly not. Yep. And so if they're not, purpose then is likely comprised of some sort of a recipe or elements that, uh, you know, when, when added together, uh, make for a clear distinction between, well, what's the difference between a, a cause and what's the difference between what and where purpose is derived from. So, so from that, have you been able to distill uh, what are the ingredients that lead to someone feeling and experiencing a sense of purpose? Yeah, and I, it starts with, the, again, like everyone has that purpose sitting inside of them. It's a question of having the courage to be able to express it and to let it lead you. Um, we found only about a third of the workforce is able to do that. Um, the, what we also found is that there, everyone has these different psychological profiles that determine what gives them a sense of meaning. So, you know, you think about the act of, you know, helping a patient as a doctor. Um, 
for many people, it's a very meaningful experience. But for many others, it's like marginally meaningful because psychologically, it's not the thing that gives them goosebumps. Um, so being able to know psychologically what gives you purpose is really critical. That's a big part of where our business is, is doing that kind of profiling um, to help you or help your employees identify those things. Um, and then it manifests, we found, in three different ways. It manifests in relationships. They're a huge part of how we experience purpose um, is in interactions with others. It's around making an impact. Um, it doesn't have to be saving the world. It's making small daily impacts to make other people's lives better, um, maybe bring a smile to their face. And third, it comes around growth, you know, stretching, pushing yourself. So when you have that sense of what your purpose is, and then you let it manifest in your relationships, impact, and growth, um, that's really when you're at the pinnacle of your career because you're fully um, enlightened in your work. So the work that you're doing in, at Imperative and, and the Imperative profiling that, you, that, that, that the platform, yeah. I believe, uh, helps individuals recognize, um, I know there's a series of purpose types or imperative types, and forgive me if I'm not yep. calling it the right thing, yep. um, that people who go through the process essentially uh, fall into. How many are there and, and, and how long has it taken you to get to where you're at in building these different purpose or imperative types that exist? Yeah. The journey really started at Taproot probably almost 10 years ago and just trying to look for these patterns um, and all the data that we had. And then as I left Taproot and started working with academics, et cetera, really doing, building a predictive model around it. So it's been about a 10-year journey and investment of several million dollars to really get it right um, or I guess close to right and we always – make it better. Um, what we found is that there are three different components that make up someone's purpose. It's who they serve, why they serve, and how they serve. And it's not about like a noun. It's not about you know, the profession. It's not about the cause again. It's more about sort of how they show up and how they want to show up. Um, we have 24 different combinations of these three different areas. So there's 24, if you will, purpose types um, that emerge. Uh, to give you a flavor of it, I mean, one of the areas that I mentioned was who you serve. What we found was that there's different elevations that people get a psychological sense of purpose from. So for some people, it's really about helping individuals. It's like that doctor I just mentioned. It's really being able to feel like your work actually improves the lives of actual people. And without that, no matter how big the impact is, it feels hollow. The second elevation is at an organizational or team level. And there it's sort of more the equivalent of the hospital administrator. It's the person who says, it's great to help patients, but what really turns me on is being able to build the team to make the hospital run more effectively so we can serve more, serve them better, realize the potential of teams, and that teams are the way we create fundamental change in the world, that few great things are done by individuals, most great things are done by a collective effort. And then the third elevation, the highest, is what we call society, which is people who say, you know what, that's great, it's great the doctors are helping patients, it's great there's hospitals, but at the end of the day, if we can't cure cancer, we can't make healthcare accessible, et cetera, like we haven't fundamentally moved the needle. And no matter what they do, they want to see that they're involved in broader trends. They want to be involved in moving the needle. So it's really important for individuals to know where they are in that continuum. And we all get a little purpose from different parts of that. But for almost everyone, there's a dominant area really get goosebumps. And being able to identify that really helps chart the course for their career. But perhaps even more importantly, on a daily basis, it helps them remember how to connect to their work and how to make sure they think about their work in a way that matters. That's a really uh, easy to understand framework, at least around, you know, the who, uh, you know, the individual, the, so teams, Brian, for the you, society. You, where do you think you are? You know, where do you think you are there on that one? You know, it's interesting. I, I, 
if I think about the times in my life that bring me the most joy, it's when I can make a one-on-one connection between two people yeah. that I really yep. have a, uh, a, you know, a real affinity towards. Um, and I yeah. guess that's probably why I am in the type of work that I do that, you know, to send Makes an sense. email between two people that don't know one another who I think should, because the dots need to be connected. And I send that email and I hit send. Yep. I love that feeling of being that, that connector. Um, so I guess if I had to pick one, it's probably on the individual side. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just so critical. And you can see how they all like, you can't create societal change without that individual piece, right? You can't create organizational change. So it's just wonderful to see that ecosystem and the people we need around us to really um, add the value we want to the world. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. You know, the uh, and to borrow your language, our imperative at Y Scouts is to transform how people and companies connect to work that matters. So, as an organization, yep. I think uh, our collective certainly falls more into the societal impact. Yet, me as an individual, I draw my my, my inspiration comes from the one on one. So, it's really interesting to think about it. That's such a that's, that's such an important insight that you just had there because I think that's one of the challenges we see is that organizations, especially CEOs, you sort of go and you hire all these people to come up with a beautiful poetic purpose for your organization um, and sort of think the job is done. Instead of realizing everyone on your team probably has a different purpose and they need to find ways to connect that purpose to the organizations. And that's really one of the major I think, challenges of leadership today is how to not just create a purpose for your organization, but how to be able to sort of mass customize the experience of your employees so that they each authentically connect to it and don't just, you know, cut and paste it on top of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think, do you think purpose, you know, cause you had mentioned that roughly only a third, at least your research that you've done, that you've been doing over yeah. a long period of time, a third of the, uh, of the workforce is truly, you know, this, this purpose oriented individual is purpose a luxury that only certain people have access to in your opinion? So we saw no correlation at all between income and purpose. Um, so, uh, and we saw that there are people in the highest end jobs that are not purpose oriented and those that are in really low end jobs that have purpose. So I think the whole idea that you have to have a certain amount of income um, is false. And I think in some ways it's actually really patronizing and it creates part of the problem, which is leaders often believing, oh, well, I have certain jobs or certain people who just can't possibly worry about purpose. And I think that's really just not the way people work because purpose is within them. And you can see this, you go to like a Starbucks and you see baristas who are working with purpose and those that aren't. You see, you know, hospital janitors that have been studied by uh, people like Amy Rosniewski at Yale and how so many people in these sort of really challenging jobs like cleaning hospital rooms find purpose in that experience. So I think it's, you know, there's obviously the great book um, and work of Viktor Frankl, who was a slave in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany and found meaning in that experience. So I, I think we really do a disservice when we sort of say poor people can't have purpose, um, that it's really patronizing and it really gives us an excuse to create jobs and to create management styles that are dehumanizing. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with you, I, and I and I love the uh, the work of Frankel. You know, I had an amazing experience about two, maybe three years ago, 
a young man by the name of Alexander Vaselli is Victor Frankl's grandson. And I was able to attend an author, an author who wrote a really interesting book, uh, had a little mastermind series and I got invited and Alexander was one of the speakers uh, in this really intimate weekend setting and got to spend time with Victor Frankl's grandson. It was, uh, it was pretty powerful and man's search for meaning was just I don't know that there was a book that I've read that's had a greater impact on me. And I share a, 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 a similar religious uh, affiliation as you do in, in Judaism. And so, you know, it's just yeah. that, that much closer to home. It's, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, to be able yeah, to find a, meaning uh, in that environment and what Frankel and, and all of the concentration camp folks went through, I, I just, I can't yeah. even possibly imagine. And to boot, it's a very short book. So per page, it's probably the best book out there. Yeah, I, I would agree. So no excuse not to read it. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's interesting as you think about, you know, recruiting. I mean, one of the tests that I challenge CEOs and managers on is never create jobs that you wouldn't have your own kids take, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know our kids are too young to take the job, but it's that sort of mindset of like not creating two different, like creating a caste system of jobs for them and jobs for us. Um, I think that is just such a it's sort of, at the root of, I think, so many of our societal ills. Well, you know, it brings up a really interesting point and something that I know that uh, you're very passionate about is the idea of job crafting and really thinking about instead of this uh, one size fits all off the shelf, you know, if you're advertising for a job and you don't have a good description, you go cruise one of the job boards, find a similar job, copy and paste and simply add a little (laughs) bit of your company's flair to it. It's just such a it is probably the most common practice when it comes to job descriptions. Of course. And you and I both know that that's just a flawed system. Talk to us about job crafting. Well, this is a great piece of work done again by Amy Rosniewski and her team when she was at Michigan. Um, just looking at how people who really found a lot of well-being, it wasn't about sort of this idea of like employee engagement. It was actually that the employees were on their own, making small changes to their job to make it fit them better. Um, and actually, for a while, I was talking about this tailoring. It's like you buy a suit off the rack and it fits you okay, which is what a typical job is. Um, if you go to a tailor, you can actually have it fit really well. And too many people just take their job and assume it has to be exactly as laid out instead of realizing you can actually tailor it. Sometimes not radically, but you can tailor it enough to make it your own, which increases your ownership, but also just makes it so much more meaningful because it's connected to your intrinsic motivation again. And it's often just about small things. It's about, you know, all of us need to stop emailing so much and pick up the phone or meet people in person when we can. Um, It's about constantly thinking about, you know, why does the work I'm doing matter Um, and being able to link that. Um, It's about doing things each day to like say, what can I do today that would make it my new personal best day and challenge me to do something I'm scared of. Um, These things make a big difference. Um, we now talk about this job hacking to sort of align with the Silicon Valley culture, but it's this basic idea of don't just take your job as, you know, off the shelf. It's something that you should hack. It is something that you should modify um, to really make it your own. And it's not something that you need a manager permission to even do. Um, it certainly helps when you can partner, but most of the good job hacks are just things that you do that other people may not even notice, but they make it something that aligns with your intrinsic motivation. You know, you brought up Silicon Valley and, and before I forget, uh, something. So I live in the Phoenix area and uh, yep. the Phoenix area is really thriving right now. It has a growing startup community as many cities around the country. And I continually hear over and over and over again, and it's driving me nuts that 
Phoenix needs to become the next Silicon Valley, or as we're referring to ourselves, the Silicon <laughs> Desert. And 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 frankly, yep. I'm embarrassed because we will never be something that we're not. And why do we feel it necessary as a Phoenix business community to latch onto a label that's already owned and dominated by a different part of the country? We should actually look within ourselves to figure out who are we, what do we stand for, and what can we proudly represent because it's authentic to us. Are you seeing similar, because you do a lot of traveling, you do a lot of speaking, yeah, and you put tons of great people in different cities. Do you see that this is a common theme that other uh, thriving metropolitan areas are trying to become the next Silicon Valley? Yeah, and it's a funny thing. It's kind of like saying I want to be the next Detroit, right? I mean, my grandmother moved to escaping Nazi Germany and moved to Detroit back when it was booming. And she describes it. It sounds exactly like Silicon Valley, but you go back there today and you're like, whoa, this is not Silicon Valley. <laughs> and I think people don't realize historical trends and the fact that um, every empire gets too full of itself and thinks it can solve every problem by applying its solution. You know, Detroit thought the assembly line was the answer to every world problem. And you go to Silicon Valley and you, know, you ask them, how do you solve homelessness? The answer is, uh, building an app, right? Sure. So it's that same fundamental, that same fundamental mindset that means that, you know, trying to be the next Silicon Valley is a fool's errand because a, you're not going to win that game, and secondly, um, even if you do, it, by then, um, I believe, you know, purpose capitals will start to emerge, um, and those will be the ones that will dominate the economy. So uh, I think trying to look at what's next, not trying to be what was and what is today, is a much better model. But yeah, there's Silicon Desert, Silicon Alley, Silicon Forest, Silicon Lake. I mean, I've heard every kind of silicon implant you can possibly get, and that's just all they are. They're implants. They're not authentic. Yeah. And uh, it's much better to say, how do we be a capital in the purpose economy? What is it that we can do to make this region the place that the best and the brightest want to come and live and thrive and create meaning for others? And what would that take? And we've done quite a bit of work early when I was writing The Purpose Economy working with mayors and civic leaders to really start to design what a purpose city would look like, but trying to make it something that is very much, as you said, authentically about uh, the people of that region. There is no sort of, unlike the sort of Silicon Valley model, like there isn't something where you can just carbon copy that. The only thing you can really copy is saying this should all just be deeply authentic to who their people are. So, Aaron, you did something really interesting as you were writing The Purpose Economy. Uh, instead of just writing the book and then having it published and just getting it out into circulation, you were able to convince uh, your publisher to get a beta version of the book out to a handful of folks, uh, really to get some feedback. And I think that's likely a bit of an unorthodox approach. And I don't know how many people have been successful doing that, but share with us a little bit about why you did that and what the feedback uh, had been from uh, your network when you did that. Yeah, it was uh, actually it was interesting. I'd finished what I thought was finished with the book, which thank God I would, uh, didn't publish at that point because in retrospect, that beta version was pretty bad. Um, but a colleague of mine, uh, Eric Reese, uh, who had been leading this whole movement around the lean startup approach um, and I were talking and sort of occurred to us that we could apply the lean approach, the agile approach to writing a book. And I thought this would be an amazing way to experiment. And it's so aligned with the values of the book, um, the idea about, you know, involving the community and not just about anyone in person. So I convinced a bunch of my friends to say, would they sponsor sending books to about 100 people in each of their networks? And I uh, twisted the arm of about 20 folks and they sent it out and we got feedback and it was everything from here's a great story you should add or here's a gap in the logic or, here's a research report you should consider um and i think 
also really just bought me some time because I think it's like anything you do something and if you put it down for a couple months and go back to it, you suddenly see much better ways to, to write. So I think it was a combination of great input, getting a lot of people bought in, but then also just having the time to put it aside and come back to it. Um, one of my favorite pieces of advice I got, um, you'll like this, is uh, someone said, why the hell are you writing a book no one reads, um, which is <laughs> largely true. And I was like, what the hell am I going to do with that advice? Um, and it really actually ended up creating one of the best things about the book. I reached out to an amazing cartoonist in Brooklyn and asked him to write a cartoon version of each chapter to start the chapter so people who don't read um, could still get the gist of the book without any heavy mental work. And those cartoons ended up really defining the book and becoming the core of the visuals for why I did keynotes and it's been part of all of our branding um, and really stood out. So it's I'm so grateful for all the feedback and the ideas that that created. And the book that actually got published in 2014 uh, was only about 20% the same as the beta. I mean, 80% of it changed as a result of all that feedback. Um, and then I just a couple of months ago re-released a paperback, um, which had about another 100 pages of just content that came from just traveling the world with the book and hearing great stories and the new research we've done at Imperative. So it's been a wonderful journey. And I like the idea of treating a book more like software, where it's not about ever being done, but just having releases um, where you're constantly learning. And the book's a representation of you as a curator of a community's knowledge. I think it's a uh, great insight. You know, it's funny you talk about the uh, the one comment that ended up really uh, adding this new flavor to the book, uh, leading you to hiring the cartoonist. Uh, a good buddy of mine is a writer, has written several books, uh, does a lot of writing for Forbes and some other uh, fast company, things like that. And uh, he has joked around with me for years. He's like, you know, I'm going to write a book and just call it chapter four, because all the research suggests that after about <laughs> chapter four of any business book, everybody checks out. And so that's been sort of the ongoing joke. So kudos to you, man, for you know tapping into the knowledge of a group and actually, you know, augmenting the book in a way that uh, obviously uh, hit as many people as possible. That's really great. Yeah, I actually call his book. I don't think with most business books, I think most business books are an article that someone gets uh, convinced to write a book out of. And that actually the first chapter, if you read that, there's no value past that. And I think that's one of the biggest strengths and weaknesses of my book is that every chapter truly is like, could have been a book itself, um, which I think makes it very dense. But it also means that like every chapter does provide a lot of brand new. Um, and I think, again, it's both the strength and weakness there. Well, and it probably also just opens up the opportunity that, uh, you know, whereas I think many books are written where you need to start at chapter one and read through in chronological order, yeah. it sounds like based on the way you've laid it out, each chapter, you know, if I have a particular interest or a need in my business, it sounds like you have a recipe where I can dive into each chapter individually and perhaps get what I need without having to go from cover to cover. Yeah, I think it goes even further than that. Like, the, there's four sections. The first section is sort of the economic argument that we're entering a purpose economy because it's just the whole argument. Second section is about individuals and how do individuals find purpose in their lives and work and what the research shows. The third section is on how do organizations thrive in the new economy. And the fourth is how do markets work and how do you become sort of the major market mover in this new economy. So it um, truly is like four books in one. Aaron, what a great conversation it has been. I mean, just fascinating stuff uh, for those of our folks out there uh, who want to go learn more, go to imperative.com. And before I let you go, Aaron, I do want to touch on something that uh, I just think is awesome and a gift you and I both share as being parents. 
uh, your 11 year old daughter is doing something that is just, I, I think, going to be uh, probably uh, one of the most proud things you'll have ever been a part of, even though it's not you doing it, but uh, as a parent. And uh, I don't know if that's the best of lead-ins, but uh, I want to tee it over to you. And maybe, <laughs> maybe you can share uh, with our audience what your 11-year-old daughter is up to. Yeah, she and her friends you know, are middle schoolers, and they're sort of in the thick of bullying. They're talking a lot about it. They're learning a lot about it. And as they were watching this presidential race and watching the aftermath, they sort of realized that adults were never taught about bullies and that Congress was never taught about bullies. So they've gone about an education campaign to write letters to senators and congressmen and women um, on the Hill and basically telling them, how do you handle bullies? Um, kids are the experts on bullies, not adults, and that there's a lot of bullying in politics right now. So she wants to mobilize every middle schooler in this country to go teach Congress how to deal with bullies and try to turn around our political system to be much more uh, humane. I mean, oh my God, if that isn't one of the more, if not most inspirational things I've heard, uh, that that's, you must be so proud. I am, and I'm trying to support her. So I'd love to get everyone in your network involved and anyone who's interested, uh, again, email me. Um, or go to uh, dcbullybusters.weebly.com and you can see their letters they've written and their videos. They're adorable. Um, and they are just, they are the future. We got to support them. Share the, uh, share the URL one more time. dcbullybusters.weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y.com. Gotcha. So dcbullybusters.weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y.com. And Weebly, uh, actually, I'm, it's funny you mentioned Weebly. I'm actually staring at their Scottsdale, Arizona uh, office. I can see it outside <laughs> my window. How funny is that? Some great, That's uh, awesome. Yeah, great folks over at Weebly helping uh, folks build websites. So good stuff, man. Aaron, I, I just love connecting with you. I'm so thankful that Likewise. you gave me a chance to uh, to give this a second shot after a failed first shot. Uh, I, I I know we will continue to run into one another and the world is a better place for having you in it and the work you and your team at Imperative are doing. And uh, I just, I'm, I'm so excited to know you, to know what you're up to, and I can't wait to see where our paths continue to cross. So thank you. Well, this has been great. Let's make this an tradition. We can catch up on the world of uh, purpose every year. Amen, man. Amen. Well, I look forward to seeing you soon. I hope have a wonderful holiday season, and uh, I know we'll catch up. Sounds great. Thank All you, right. sir. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Aaron. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. Also, if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.